Okay, well, um, today we're in Re Revelation 18, and I want to apologize to those who um, are... I have urged everyone to read and familiarize yourself with the passage beforehand. Um, but sometimes I change my mind as I go through and the, the things on the website aren't perfectly corresponding. And I know that this week that it was late before this got corrected. So if anybody read last week's passage instead of this week's, I apologize for that. But anyway, we're in Revelation 18 today, the fall of Babylon. Now you remember last week we were introduced, in our last chapter, chapter 17, we were introduced to the great prostitute, who is also called Babylon the Great. This uh, was from verse 5, because it described this prostitute as having written on her forehead a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. We saw that even though this woman was actually literally carried along by Satan, nonetheless she was beautiful and enchanting because she, her assignment, her satanic task was to seduce people away from Christ. We, we said that she represented the city of man or humanity in rebellion against God. But more specifically, that part of the world which appeals and tempts and lures people through pleasures, through false securities. But why is she called Babylon the Great? So let's get into that a little bit because that's an important part of our passage this morning. So let's talk a little bit about history. It began in the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, where the people of Babel, which of course is Babel and Babylon, same place, the people of Babel said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. So this same spirit continues on and is now picked up even in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Around 597 BC, of course, the Jewish nation was conquered by the mighty empire of Babylon. And they were carried to Babylon for 70 years to live there in exile where they were subjugated and oppressed by a people and an empire which had built their success on the backs of weaker peoples and nations. And that leads us to the next part of the story in Daniel chapter 4, where we find King Nebuchadnezzar, on the, uh, the king of Babylon, on the roof of his palace, saying to himself, and this is the first time we hear this expression, Babylon the Great, even though the, the, uh, they had said in Genesis 11.4, let us build ourselves a city here. Nebuchadnezzar says, is this not Babylon the Great, which I have built with my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? But of course, it was not just the prostitute 
and her role in Satan's service that we were introduced to in chapter 17. It was also her judgment because the very first verse of chapter 17 says, One of the angels said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And so that's what we're reading about in chapter 18. The judgment of the great prostitute, the judgment of Babylon. Now, this morning it's our ambitious task to cover 19 verses, much more than we usually do in a morning. And because this passage is so long, I'm not going to read the entire thing here at the beginning, but I'm going to read each of its four parts as we come to it to save time. So let's start with the first section, the first chunk, which is Revelation 18, 1 through 3. So let me read that now. This is the fall of Babylon predicted. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now this angel might well be Christ himself. Because every other time in the book of Revelation, a heavenly being is described as having glory. It's always either describing God or Christ. And we see that one day here... The world of human lust, human pride, and human self-exaltation, and human luxury will be judged with great fury for all the sin it has caused and promoted. One day, everything that looks new and exciting and fun and cool in this world will lie in ruins. It will no longer matter who was popular, who was beautiful, who was in style, or who won the award or the game. One day the world of pleasure and thrills and luxury and money making will be exposed for what it truly is, a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for unclean spirits, unclean birds like vultures unclean beasts like hyenas. Outwardly, she looked so resplendent, but behind it all, there was only death and demons. It looked like she was going to provide prosperity and pleasure, but it was all a scam. So that's the point here. God wants us to live in the knowledge of what's going to happen and not to live by appearances like the world does. Not to live with the idea that this world is permanent 
and can be rested in, in and trusted in. And the voice which announces this is loud because God wants to get our attention so we don't miss it. Because we're all in danger of falling under Babylon's spell, oblivious to our own impending doom if we do so. The second chunk is verse 4 and 5, where God's people are urged to separate from Babylon before she is judged. Revelation 18, 4 and 5. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. The world has its form of coming out. Here is the Christian and biblical form of coming out. It's God's cry for his people to come out of Babylon. To come out of the world before he pours judgment upon it. It reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19 where God told Lot to flee the city with his family so that they may not be destroyed in the day of his judgment. And here, this is a warning to believers who are being tempted to buy into the world's idolatrous system and also an encouragement to those who are standing firm in their refusal to compromise with the world. This call to come out must not be taken as a command to withdraw from the social or economic life of the world. We're supposed to be of the world. I'm sorry, we're not supposed to be of the world, but we are supposed to be in the world. The coming out here is not isolation. It's talking about being morally and spiritually distinct from the world. It's talking about our identity our security, and the location of our delights. It's all about worship, ultimately. And every Sunday morning that we gather is our coming out party. The next chunk, the third chunk, is a cry for judgment to fall on Babylon. Verses 6 through 8. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her sins. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measurement of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For the mighty, I'm sorry, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This cry is probably the angel crying out to God to judge Babylon. But it could be instead the 
cry of God himself to his agents of judgment to pour out his judgment upon her. It doesn't really matter because the message is clear. Babylon is about to get paid back for all she has done and continues to do. She is glorifying herself instead of glorifying God. She is living in luxury at the expense of others. She has unbridled self-confidence that she is and will always be queen of the hill. It's interesting, Isaiah 47.7 says of earthly Babylon, You said, I shall be queen forever. Almost the exact same words that this spiritual Babylon speaks here. But she will be paid back severely with plagues, with death, with mourning, with famine, with fire, all of which are mentioned here in verse 8. She will be paid back suddenly. Her plagues will come in a single day. And it is the mighty Lord God who will bring his judgment upon her. Now this passage may sound stark. You know, a lot of people don't like reading this kind of stuff. It's too disturbing. But the fact is, it's the very same thing Jesus taught. Listen to Luke 6, 24-26. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is just, Revelation 18 is just the fulfillment of what Jesus said. Satan, you see, wants us to think that the pleasure never ends. And that there will be no consequences for rebellion and sin. He loves it when we have swagger and brim with self-confidence and arrogance. God calls us to live in fear and trembling, always aware of the shortness of our lives. The world looks only at today and chooses not to worry about tomorrow. But the fact is, tomorrow is coming. Do you remember the Old Testament story of the handwriting on the wall in Daniel chapter 5? King Belshazzar of Babylon, again, the king of Babylon, was feeling high and mighty one day as he threw a big party for his friends. So he ordered that all the vessels and the utensils which the Babylonian army had taken from God's temple in Jerusalem when they had conquered Judea, Judah, that they be brought and used at his big party. These vessels that were made and set apart for the holy purposes of the temple. But then as they were getting drunk and enjoying themselves with these vessels, a great hand appeared writing a message on the wall of the, of the room. And Daniel the prophet was called in to interpret the message. And he said that it means that God is bringing the, your days to an end because of your sin. And he's giving this, your kingdom over to the Medes and the Persians 
And the last verse says, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, was killed, and Darius the Mede became king. So you see, this is exactly the same thing has happened to old Babylon. Even as disaster came upon glorious, powerful, earthly Babylon in one day, so it will be with spiritual Babylon one day soon. The next and final section, 9 to 19, is about what happens after the judgment of Babylon. When those who cooperated with her lament because they prospered as a result of her and now that she has fallen they are plunged into despair as a result. But there are actually this section is pretty long and you can easily divide it, divide it into three sections. First it focuses on the lament of the kings of the earth in verses 9 and 10. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand afar off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas! great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The next section is the lament of the merchants of the earth in 11 to 17a. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of those wares who gained wealth from her will stand afar off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And finally, we read the lament of the mariners, the, the seafaring men, and all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. 
where in a single hour she has been laid waste. Overall, there are two groups who are mourning here over the fall of Babylon. One is the business people who made a killing selling worldly treasures and services to the intoxicated masses. But now they've lost their business and their, their cash cow is gone and so they mourn. The other is the masses who mourn because they no longer have access to the intoxicating delights of the world which brought them so many thrills and pleasures. And of course, there's really a third category and that's the kings of the earth, the governing officials who made their money by taxing and, and uh, bribe, bribes through it all so that they uh, were rich and now their power is gone as well. These people are on the verge of losing something much more valuable than their material wealth or earthly pleasure. But their obsession with these things is so great that they're numb to their own doom, which is impending. Their cries of lamentation, of course, are nowhere close to true repentance. Their expressions of grief over their own demise. These people are mourning in agony because they've lost the one thing they were counting on. The thing that made them happy. The thing that they really believed in and now it's gone. And their happiness and their security and their very lives are gone with it. You can see this in verse 14. The fruit which your soul longed for has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. And part of their shock, of course, is the suddenness and quickness of Babylon's destruction. It, it comes at the end of each of these three sections. In a single hour your judgment has come. In a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. In a single hour she has been laid waste. Verse 10, 17, and 19. Why is this repeated and emphasized? Well, again, so that we will not think of this world and its structures as solid and firmly established, but see that in reality they are very fragile, very temporary and ready to crash in a moment. And so that we will not feel confident, but it will be, we won't feel confident that somehow it will be so obvious far enough ahead of time that we'll have time to prepare at that time. Rather, we'll realize it could come at any moment. Well, even if you don't feel like you fully grasp the meaning of this passage, you can still grasp the intensity, the power, and the seriousness of this passage. You can grasp the point that the whole God thing is not a game. As we edge closer and closer to the climax of the book of Revelation, it becomes more and more apparent that God really means business and that the Christian faith is not something to be taken lightly. 
here we can see the threat and the danger for those who buy into the world system and its delights. You know, in some people's minds, you're a Christian if you think that Christianity is the best of all the religions. Or they talk as if there are Christians and then there are devout Christians. Well, how can there be non-devout Christians in light of the book of Revelation? Right at the beginning in chapter 3, verse 16, God says that the lukewarm make him want to vomit. My point is not that you should go home and work on becoming more devout. My point is that you should know that there is an all-powerful yet invisible God who has revealed himself in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ his son who came in human flesh who bore the penalty for human sin upon the cross who was raised from the dead and who is going to return as judge again to gather his people to himself and pour out his judgment upon his enemies throwing them into eternal torment if that is true then the only thing that really matters is how we deal with Christ everything else is trivial what good is it to be successful or popular or rich or the envy of others if everything's going to change in a moment if it's all going to burn if all of our most precious treasures are going to someday be trash what's the point of collecting it or showing it off or feeling secure because of it in a single hour all this wealth shall be laid waste beloved we must not be flirting with the things of this world the world is full of compromisers people content to live and be part of a corrupt system and avoid the consequences of taking a stand but it must not be so with us who are Christians Jesus says here come out of her my people God made us to long for paradise but he also told us that we can't have it here in this life on this earth we must wait for it Satan comes along and he says you know you can actually have it now and that is attractive to us because we long for it and he makes godly standards seem odd and sinful values seem normal so it's easy to be lulled into giving in and even for those who know better it's easy to flirt with sin remember it is impressive even John marveled at this woman in chapter 17 it definitely appeals to something inside of us but Jesus says we've got to come out we've got to leave this world behind or we're going to get up get caught up in her sin and in her judgment this is especially hard for people who have a lot we long to be rich human beings long to be beautiful and talented and popular 
and successful. But the honest fact is these things make it harder for us to resist the pull of the world. That's why Jesus said it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 19.23. There's nothing wrong with being rich, mind you, or beautiful or talented or popular or successful. It's just hard for people like that to remember that all of it is really nothing. That Christ is everything. That's why Paul charges the rich not to be haughty or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but only on God. And he tells them to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, so as to store up treasure for eternity and take hold for that which is truly life. Because you see, the temptation is to think that the stuff I have, the position I have, that this life is life. Jesus, no, that's not true life. True life is what I give you. It's eternal life. I love the way, again, that verse 14 says it. The fruit for which your soul long has gone from you. What is the fruit for which my soul longs? Your soul longs. Instead of being satisfied with the cornucopia of fruit that God had given them, Adam and Eve longed for the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were fooled by the servant into thinking that they were being offered life when in fact they were being offered death. And Revelation 18 is a God sent wake-up call for us. Like a parent shouts at a toddler who is about to walk out into the street. Christ here is shouting out to gain our attention. Don't go into that street. It may look safe and exciting, but there are dangerous things there that are going to kill you if you go out. Out. Why should we trust him? We trust him because he's proven himself to us. He's proven himself to us by coming and taking the suffering that drives us crazy and laying it all down for us upon the cross so that we can know that he loves us and he will do everything that he that everything to do what we need done for ourselves. That then we can trust Him. And we can believe Him. If He says that's good for you, we know it's good for us. If He says that's bad for you, we know it's bad for us. So He says, come out of her. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance now to uh, be reminded in this chapter of the urgency it's so intoxicating, O oh Lord. It's so captivating to be around the world and all of its securities, and treasures, and enjoyments. We thank you, dear Lord, that you give us all good things to enjoy. Please, O oh Lord, not allow our hearts to get attached to things which could be 
become our downfall. Pray that we would receive gifts that you give us with open hands. That we would yield to you the first of what you give. To constantly demonstrate that you are the thing that's really important to us and not the gifts that you give. Thank you now that we are able to come to the table of our Lord where we celebrate what he did for us, where we draw near to him and we look to him for strength, O oh Lord, as he feeds us that we might finish this race and fight the good fight until the end. We pray in the precious name of Jesus.